Welcome to Social Workers Break Room. This is Imelda. And I'm Jennifer. And on this week's episode, we bring you billable hours, boundaries, and the monster under your bed. Spooky. (laughs) Stay with us. You know, in true Instagram fashion, we posted this meme. Um, this was months ago, but it's been like, one of the most popular memes that we have posted on the page. And it was just the right thing to do to yes. talk about this. And if you don't know which meme we're talking about, it's the kitty in the corner. Imagine a soft white kitten, <laughs> downstricken, sobbing in the corner of a small green tile bathroom. Mm-hmm. Captioned with... Didn't make billable hours. Didn't make billable hours. That's so sad. We don't want you to be kitty in the corner. Um, So we're here today to talk about progress notes, billable hours, and a potential solution for that. So I know if I've had problems making billable hours um, and completing my progress notes on time. Same thing. Yeah, it's... It, it always feels like it's a, a visual cycle of spending time with your clients, uh, making sure that you have enough billable hours, but you also need your documentation and you need to keep your notes up to date. So how do you make sure that you're doing both and doing it well? Yeah. So I, myself, in a much more reputable organization than just myself, uh, SAMHSA, which is the Substance Abuse and Mental Health um, Association of America, identifies collaborative documentation. Um, So its definition in the fancy way uh, is collaborative documentation is a clinical tool that provides clients with the opportunity to provide their input and perspective on series and progress and allows clients and clinicians to clarify their understanding of important issues, which is a really long way to say. That's a lot. You do your notes in session. Yep. What, what, what does that look like? What it largely looks like in for me is I introduce it to my clients um, right when I do in my spiel. So I discuss my role, you know, what I'm here to do today, what I can and cannot do, the limitations on confidentiality because we're all mandated reporters. And I think most of us take notes during session. Um, so I work it into that. I tell my clients that sometimes my brain is like Swiss cheese. Some stuff sticks, some stuff doesn't. Um, but that what they're telling me is too important for me to miss. So I'm going to take some notes during the session. And then what's a little bit different about my spiel when I do collaborative documentation is I introduce, you know, during the last five minutes, if you don't mind, if we can summarize and then set a plan for our next session or your next week. So you make them part of the, the whole process. It doesn't feel like they are just sitting in front of you with a computer. Yeah. And, you know, I hear often like, oh, the clients are going to feel like they're doing the paperwork, but instead they now feel involved in the documentation and they're much less paranoid. If you flip over your laptop, you flip over your computer and say, hey, here's what I got down. You know, does this sound about right? So, you know, we're more identifying needs and problems, things like, you know, so these are the areas I've identified that we should work on. You know, this is one, this is two. And I can't tell you how many times that the client doesn't want to work on one of those. Or, you know, I wrote down something that wasn't accurate. You know, it wasn't a girlfriend. It was mom or something Mm -hmm. awkward. Don't make it accurate. (laughs) Exactly. And it's like, it's basically kind of the more adult version of practicing the fast food rule. Mm -hmm. You've never made it through a drive-thru without them reading back your order on the speaker. That's true. If you pulled all the way forward, um, half the time, you know, we'd end up with tacos instead of burgers or something we're deathly allergic to, but they read it back to you to make sure you get it right. But somehow that's a standard of communication for McDonald's, but not for master's level social workers. Yeah. Do you think that some of the hesitation from people to use this type of documentation is that the clients will resent doing paperwork or they will feel that it's taken away from the treatment plan? Yeah. So again, people much fancier than I um, have studied this. So in most outcome data says that transitioning from post-session documentation, which we often lose a lot of details because we're going from client to client. um, So we lose important facts or we're spending our weekends and our nights and times that we should be recovering and centering joy and connecting with people doing our documentation. Um, When you do collaborative documentation, on average, it saves six to hours a week per full-time staff member. That's awesome. What about um, social workers or providers who don't have a computer or don't have the technology that they need to actually do and doing it with the client, you know, 
what are the alternatives to that? So I would say the most important thing if you're going to try this is to really know your assessment tool. You know, if you're going to try and do a PHQ-9 off the top of your head, please know what's on PHQ-9. But I think most of us have probably done our assessments or our notes with clients hundreds of times before. You know, we know generally what to ask. And by all means, if you were going to write it on your computer, if you can write it on paper, I have no issue flipping my clipboard over to clients and I point them around, you know, my chicken scratch to say, okay, you know, I have that, you know, you've gotten in a couple fights this last week with your girlfriend um, as something that's very important to you, you know, second to your relationship with your mom. Did I get that right? And getting kind of that summary, being able to underline and star things makes it very quick if you are going to have to go back and do post-session documentation. When I've done things like home visits, you know, almost all of us have a cell phone in our pocket and there are HIPAA compliant ways that you can take notes on your cell phone Hmm. to be able to jot a couple things down um, just to before you again, you leave the session like, hey, you know, this is what I got down. This is what I need to work on. This is what you need to work on. Does that sound about right to you? Mm -hmm. Correct it. Send it to yourself in a secure email or wherever you would normally do secure documentation in the field. And that way your notes at least started. And that way you have it on paper before you leave the session. So even if you've only saved yourself, you know, five to 10 minutes, you might've also saved yourself five to 10 minutes of racking your brain or being like, oh my gosh, I forgot their dog's name. Um, And feeling like the worst therapist on earth. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's one of the the main things that um, makes progress notes a little difficult and time consuming that you have to go back and pretty much relive the whole conversation that you have with them. You know, think about your observations, you know, if you notice something off of their typical self, maybe there was someone else in the house, you know, all those things that will save you so much time as you just take those notes and take those observations as you go. And yeah, I think if you, you know, you mentioned something very important about reading back to the client while you're writing down. So they have that level of trust of that while you're writing down, it's a true reflection of what they feel and what's going on. And that's just not just your notes as an outsider judging into them, you know, so that's an important distinction to make. Yeah, I've noticed that clients feel a lot less paranoid. And especially if it's one where you're doing paper assessments and you can fill out the whole thing in session, or if it's an online template that you were normally going to fill out, not only have you kind of finished your whole documentation, but a lot of times you also are doing the things that begin the treatment planning and the things that, you know, really start kind of staking and making those important connections with the clients. Um, And a lot of times I've heard from staff, you know, things that they're concerned about, like, oh, I think the client, you know, might be paranoid schizophrenic. I think that, you know, what they're saying isn't true, isn't real, but we were probably going to document largely based on the client's reality anyway. So by all means, you can keep your separate notes. Um, I've noticed that, you know, when I have an independent observation that the client might not agree with, I'll get the majority of the notes done during the session. Mm -hmm. And then a couple minutes later, you know, come back or at the end of the day when I'm signing all my notes, go back and say like, hey, you know, note these might be delusions or note that, you know, it sounds like he's saying mom is the really big issue, but it sounds like it's a boundaries issue or an issue with the girlfriend. We can always add our own stuff later, but to get the bulk of your note done in the session, have the client agree with what you've documented saves time and Mm -hmm. increases trust. Yeah. For a social worker or a service provider who has never done this, how do you think it will be a good way to to start this. Um, I know that some agencies don't really provide the technology or the tools for people to utilize this technique, but I think we, we need to take it up to us to find things that work better for us and that we're going to make our caseload and our notes and, you know, our progress notes and whatnot easier, you know, so we avoid burned out. So What would you suggest for social workers who have never done um, this type of documentation? How do they start? You know, what would be a good a good way to start with small steps, I guess? Yeah. If you have supportive supervision or even just supportive peers, try interviewing each other. Um, Someone you trust to call you out to say that was awkward. That was weird. Mm -hmm. You know, I felt really unseen when you had your laptop in front of you. Um, When you flipped your clipboard over and I saw you wrote the word paranoid, you know, it made me feel really upset. So practicing the technique of it and giving yourself, you know, some kind of key phrases and starting points. Um, So when you're talking about diagnosis, you know, a lot of clients really want to know what 
they have and they trust your opinion as a practitioner, but you might not be quite ready to say something, especially if it's something bold or something they haven't heard before. So just to start, you know, with, okay, let's sum up what we've discussed. And then Mm -hmm. you can drop those things in like, you know, the DSM-5 type symptoms that you're saying, and it might be a good time to say, you know, typically with this presentation, you know, we would say you have major depressive disorder, you know, and we might get to know each other better over time. But at this time, I feel like that's an accurate reflection of what's going on. Another is to start not just with goal setting, but to start with outcomes tends to work better in collaborative documentation because for clients to formulate SMART goals, sometimes it's like pulling teeth Mm -hmm. and even practitioners, sometimes we're not so great at it either. So with, you know, what do you want the outcome to be as we work on this issue Um, and developing that collaborative statement. So then when you start with that question, you can start typing the treatment plan in real time. Or, you know, if we accomplish what you have um, said you want to be able to do or something that you can't do now, how can we set those goals? How can you apply what we've learned to this new situation? Things that kind of work in that collaborative that it makes more sense for you to be typing in rather than what's your goal? Yeah. What do you want to achieve? Just leave it very open. Yeah. Because that's, I think that doesn't, like the, the client is going to respond to how, however we set up the session. And so if we want to get more detailed information from them, then we need to structure our questions and the way we approach them. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And for a lot of us who have a lot of paperwork to fill out, whether that be something that is on the computer, you know, can you take a screenshot of it and print it out? Can you copy and paste it into a Word document? You know, what's going to be helpful materials for you to bring into a session that when you review it with the client is going to feel okay, it's going to sit well with both of you. You know, you don't feel like you're going to divulge their whole story with what you've written, but you also feel like you have an accurate account that you would feel comfortable translating into a computer or dropping into a chart. Yeah. How can we find more information on this? So you can find more information on the Social Workers Break Room website. Also, our Instagram stories highlights for episode one has a link to the SAMHSA website uh, with their PowerPoint on how to get this started at your agency and the data behind it. Perfect. Thank you so much for sharing. I know this information will be very useful to not only new social workers, uh, but also seasoned social workers who are trying to find ways to make their sessions more productive and to reduce the time spent doing paperwork. Exactly. Because if you're doing that documentation during a session, your session is billable hours. So as we're Mm -hmm. thinking of our sad cat in the corner who's not making (laughs) billable hours, our fabulous cats slash other social workers um, who are doing collaborative documentation are probably making their billable hours. You know, and as we think of things, other things that have been popular, the idea of all of us as social workers sleeping in bed and waking up at three in the morning, realizing our case notes aren't up to date or the case notes being the monster under the bed. You know, this is one way that we can combat them. Yeah, I think we have all been there. Um, I know I speak from experience, especially during my early years in the field, um, just going to bed or taking a shower and like, you know, or driving, you know, those those moments where you're not really thinking about work, but just it just comes to you and like, oh, I haven't updated this or I need to see this family and update this this uh, treatment plan or I need to, you know, whatnot. Um, and it's always in the back of your mind. And yeah, like sometimes it is the monster on your bed that keeps you up at night because you know that supervision is going to come and your supervisor is going to review all your documentation and you want to make sure it's up to date. So this is a great, great tool to start using. I think I'm going to start using it as well. Awesome. Yeah. Also when, you know, CMS and Jago come or CARF or whomever your credentialing body is comes knocking on your door, helps you feel really confident, especially when they go interview clients that you were all on the same page when you left that room and everything that you were on the same page about Mm -hmm. made it on the page before you left the room. That's great. Thank you for sharing. Our next topic also came from a meme. 
of course, because why not? And it's one of the most recent memes that we have posted on our Instagram stories. And it's the the lady and the cat, the super famous lady and the cat. So if you have not seen it, you've been under a rock and you haven't seen this meme at all floating the internet. So the photo is a mashup of a blonde woman from the real housewives yelling at a confused looking white cat sitting in front of a plate of vegetables we don't really know how like how this combination happened but we thank the internet gods for putting it together because it's so funny and it's so relatable yeah i deeply identify with both the screaming (laughs) blonde woman and also a confused cat yep yep we i think at some point in our lives we have all been both so in this case the screaming lady is saying you said i will have a low case load and the confused cat says i said you will be on overload and if this is not real life social work conversations with your supervisor i don't know what it is Mm -hmm. because we have all been there uh we have all been uh job interviews where our future supervisors or bosses tell us you know you know you're gonna have a 13 client caseload and that's the max and you start working and three months in someone leaves a job and you are stuck with their caseload which and if somebody's personally done this to Imelda yes (laughs) a 13 person caseload and stuck her with a 25 um I think we can all identify with this deeply Mm-hmm. So we want to unpack this a little bit and talk about what can we do uh, from the social work seat, I guess, uh, when when you're interviewing for a job, you know, how can you get a better sense of what the agency protocol is for caseloads and you have heard before in a job interview not only they are interviewing you but you are also interviewing the agency and the person that you were working with so there are ways that we can get a sense of how things will be right Jennifer I don't know I mean you have you have been on the hiring seat for some agencies and uh How often people do actually ask questions, uh, like in-depth questions? Very little, unfortunately. Um, And that's something that I look for because my goal whenever I hire someone is to eventually have them either be able to take my job or to outgrow me. Mm -hmm. So if they're not centering those kinds of things from the beginning, you know, it raises some red flags for me. It also raises, you know, red flags for me on their behalf of, you know, are they going to be able to set boundaries? Are they really getting what they want? You know, are they still excited and passionate and wanting to help clients? And one of the things that I found, you know, that becomes incredibly telling about the agency is if you ask to shadow. Mm -hmm. So a lot of agencies have client protection agreements because we have to give marketing tours. You know, we have to have electricians come in. We have to have IT people come in. So we have agreements, you know, little one pagers that you can sign that if you're going to come shadow, you're not going to inappropriately use any patient information. And what's great about that is you get to sit down with the job that you would potentially have and, you know, kind of hear the nitty gritty dirt on management and look at the EMR and look at the process and look at the client paperwork and what the clientele looks like and really see, you know, is this something I can see myself doing eight hours a day, 40 hours a week for, you know, gosh knows how long sometimes. Is that, I you know, actually, I have never heard of that, of shadowing a potential job. Is that something that employers are open to? Yeah. You know, I've never had anyone say no to me when I've come and said, you know, it's really important to make sure that we're a good fit for each other. You know, I'm excited that you're excited about me. I want to be excited about you. And one way that I can be really excited is if I know what I'm getting into, you know, would you mind if I interviewed one of your employees? that works in the same position that I'd be in, you know, if they're not open to a shadow, you know, could you bring in a current employee um, to sit on a panel interview with me so that they can ask questions about their potential new coworker? So there's lots of different ways to get creative if they're not comfortable with shadowing. And also, you know, it's an investment for you. For a lot of us, you know, we either had to take PTO or give up our lunch break to go on that interview to begin with. Mm -hmm. But really that eight hours of shadowing is an investment in making sure you don't pick the wrong job and that you're not miserable for the next, you know, six to eight months or however long you can stand it. Yeah, I think 
I mean, I, I speak from experience and I've been guilty of that. Um, especially when you're looking for a job and you, you're in need, you know, you're like, I need to have bills to pay and I have student loans coming up and mm-hmm. I need a job. And you often fall for the first one that comes and you're so excited yeah. that you get an interview that you fail to ask all these questions and without thinking ahead of, you know, like, is this, is this a place that supports my self-care and that supports me setting boundaries with my clients and, you know, expectations on caseloads and whatnot. So I think it's very, very important to to come prepared to the interviews. And even if it's just a few, a few questions, I think uh, we have made a list of questions that could be very useful for all of you to use that I think I personally could have used and could have saved yeah. myself a lot of headaches if I would have asked some of these questions. So if you want to write them down, this is your chance to go get some pen and paper. Yes. Or not. So the first one, what's the average caseload? And this one I would get into one, you know, and when does that change? Why, why is the caseload the way it is? Yeah. If it's 13 clients, what do they look like? What am I responsible Are for? Are they high needs? Is it high needs cases or just, you know, how often do I need to meet with them? I worked at um, a family shelter where I had about 12 cases and I was like, oh, 12 cases, that's, that's easy. You know, I can do this, but they didn't tell me that I was supposed to meet with each client at least three times a week. Right. So yeah. Or there's a medical hospital here that's like, oh, it's 90 cases, but you share it with a nurse. And I'm hearing that's 45 cases a piece on a good day. Mm-hmm. Um, what does the caseload look like when somebody calls out, when you fire someone, when someone's on maternity leave, yep. all the great things that happen in our field because people, you know, actually do things like take care of themselves, have okay. a family. Um, <laughs> what does your caseload look like then? Yeah. Very, very important question. What's the average caseload and what does it look like when things don't go as expected? You know, like it could be many different situations. And what's your role? And when my caseload goes up, how do you support me? What does Mm -hmm. that look like? Do you call in PRNs? Do you come help me with psychosocials? What is it? What's your role in management in when the caseload goes above what you just quoted me as an average? Right. Which leads to the next question. What's our policy on overtime? We have all been there. You know, we are hired for 40 hours a week, but most of us, when you're working with clients, you end up putting in 50, 60 hours. And if you work in a place where they don't cover overtime, then you end up working for free. And we know when you're working for free. Yeah. So asking, you know, if you're going to be salaried, awesome. How do I track my hours when I go over? How do you make sure that I have a balance of that? Do you have policies such as comp time? You know, can I get extra vacation or PTO days if I'm going to consistently be working overtime? And if I'm consistently working overtime and demonstrating that, what's the plan then? Does Mm -hmm. that feedback go to you to hire additional staff? Does it need to go higher up? What is the policy on overtime if you're not going to pay me for it? Right. Yeah, I worked um, not long ago at an agency where I was not an hourly employee. I was a salary so that blurs the lines a little bit more on expectations, but I had a really good supervisor and we figure a way that, you know, if I will go over or have to work a few extra hours or I had a special event or the weekend, some, I had to take care of a crisis on the weekend or whatnot, that I could just flex time, mm-hmm. you know, the next Monday or the next day that is not as busy. Um, and it would just be you know, a, a nice flow of like, oh, you went over your time and this week because you took care of this crisis or you take care of this event and just come in a little bit later, you know, a couple of times a week or whatnot. So, but I think setting those expectations in the beginning, it's very, very important. Yeah. And right up there with, uh, if you didn't document it, it didn't happen because if you go to take that to a higher level that, you know, you've worked over this many hours, you were told about flex time. And if you don't take care of it right away, you know, you'll end up with 140 overtime hours and you can't be begging to take three weeks vacation. Mm -hmm. So what's your recourse to making sure you're documenting that? Right. Um, Another question that will be very useful is to ask, how do they handle crisis and clients on call? Um, Or do they have an on-call policy? Sometimes there are agencies who, you know, they have to be, someone has to be on call 24 seven. So they rotate the, the crisis 
phone. That's usually what agencies do. So how often do you need to be on call? How often are you going to be assigned the on-call cell phone? Uh, and what's the expectation? So just you have to make sure that you take that into consideration before taking the job because sometimes it means that on the weekends or overnights, you're going to be on call. And that means that you can't really go and enjoy a movie or go do things that you will normally do because you have to be you know, available. Right. And to make sure that your agency has something documented on it. Um, I think of a story that was in um, a fabulous book by uh, Laura Vanderlip Lipsky when she talks about a domestic violence shelter where it was all the social workers' responsibilities to be on call all the time. Oh my God. And the only reason they wouldn't have to come back to the shelter to do an intake or to handle a client is if they were intoxicated. So every single one of those social workers ended up becoming alcoholics. The minute their keys hit the door, they poured themselves a drink because if they knew they were two drinks deep, they wouldn't have to, come, wouldn't in. Have to come in. <laughs> so they created a culture of alcoholics by not having a good yeah. on-call policy. Um, so how does your agency handle that? What does on call mean too? Sometimes it's the phone. Um, when I worked hospice, it was going out to handle crying families and dead bodies at three in the morning. And I had to be, you know, dressed to the nines, hair done, makeup done, but also respond quickly. Mm -hmm. And is that something that's going to work for you? You know, if you have small children and need to leave the home. Um, so getting those kind of clear on call because that starts to blur boundaries even further. Oh Yeah. Yeah, I, that's, that sounds awful. Uh, being on call all the time. I don't, I have never heard of that. Yeah, yeah. It, not something that would work for me or I think most people, especially folks with good boundaries. Yeah. So I guess like, you know, nowadays when we're transitioning more into remote work or working from home, you know, more and more agencies who want to tailor to the needs of their their staff and also, you know, hiring millennials and hiring younger people means that they have to adapt to the way that the work environments have changing. So working from home, that's that's a big thing right now. I know you, Jennifer, you, you work from home right now and it does the first time that you have worked from home before, right? Yeah. How is, how is that working for you? I work from home. Um, it has completely changed my life. A hundred percent of my staff also work from home. Awesome. It's, it's different to be a remote workforce. There's got to be a lot of trust in there and you've got to have a lot of documented accountability and that's to protect you and the employer. Because if you're working from home, you know, we don't want you spending seven hours a day doing your laundry, scrubbing the grout, you know, baking thousands of chocolate chip cookies, eating bonbons on the couch and watching Netflix, which is what we all imagine when you don't <laughs> answer the phone when you're working from home. But if you have, you know, those clear boundaries, it makes it a lot easier. If we talk about work-life balance, this is literally some of the inaction of it, of how am I balancing throwing the laundry in with doing a therapy session mm -hmm. and how am I folding the laundry, you know, while I'm voice dictating documentation, you know, how do I make work work into my life. Right. And, you know, and we know it's not realistic to think that the social work field would transition eventually to working from home because it's, you know, we, we work with people and especially working in, in direct practice, it's going to be very hard to find agencies that allow you to work from home. But I will say that more and more I've seen it. Um, I've, I have a few friends who work at, um, I don't know, patient clinic and they see all their clients during the first three days of the week. They do all their meetings, all their sessions with their clients face to face. And then the last two days of the week, they are allowed to work from home and do their notes from their couch, which it's, it reduces their turnover from staff dramatically um, because people feel that they can be at home and they can spend more time with their family. Even if they're working, they're just present there. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a big question to ask if, you know, if you're allowed to work from home or staff can work from home. Yeah, I would say, you know, we've talked a lot about questions that have to do, you know, with the actual kind of nitty gritty of the job. But we've all seen the posts and I'm sure we've all identified with them deeply. The ones that say, you know, people don't quit a job, they quit a manager. Mm -hmm. um, so what are some things that you can ask about a manager? True. So two of the ones that we thought um, might be important for that are how will you support me? Asking your manager very directly, what's your plan to support me? What do you do on a day to day basis out of your eight hour day? You know, 
what do you spend your time on and how does that support me? Is it doing big picture projects that save me time, that get the agency money? Do you have an open door policy where I can drop in, shut the door and cry if I need to? <laughs> you know, what does that support I've look like it. and what do you need it to look like? Right. Yeah. And I and you have to make sure that the, the type of support that the supervisor provides, it's what matches your, your needs, your needs and your I will say your love language. <laughs> yeah, your communication style. Communication For those style. of you who don't want to get weird with your manager. <laughs> yeah, do not ask your manager what's your love language. <laughs> Unless you're trying to lose your license. It's a good fast track. Um, but yeah, it is very important that their supervising style matches your needs too. Because if not, it's just going to be a power struggle. And you can also ask the manager, what will staff say is your biggest flaw? And I think this is a, a tricky question because some people might take it as a as an attack, I guess, maybe. But, but also they probably asked you less than 10 minutes ago, what would you say are your two biggest weaknesses? True. And this is your interview too. Yep. So you have to you have to know what their weaknesses are and what their staff is saying about them too. So you are prepared. You know, they say like, oh, you know, my staff says that they they wish I could be more available. Now that means that that person is... Yeah, giant red flag. Yep, big red flag. If you're someone who needs to be supported yep, frequently. So pay attention to, to those words that might give you more information. Than- or anyone who says that their staff would die for them. I haven't met one yet. <laughs> so those are some things that you can do before you get yourselves into these situations. You know, that's the boundary setting in the interview. And a lot of these things, um, how I would recommend for accountability is to get that kind of stuff written into your job description. Instead of manage a caseload of clients, manage a caseload of about 12 clients. If Mm -hmm. caseload goes over 12 clients, manager will step in, peer will help support. And then when you have that job description signed by you and your manager, that's a piece of accountability to take to HR when things aren't going right. True, yeah. And just be prepared because those things happen very, very often. I know I had, um, when you were mentioning that I, I, I have been there. Yeah. It's, uh, I was working at an agency and I had, um, a manageable caseload of about maybe like 16, 17. I was working with high, ne- high needs youth and I, you know, I was able to manage it very well. And then one of my coworkers, one of my team members, um, left. So I absorbed all of his, cases. So I ended up having about 30 or more than 30. Um, and the expectations of me meeting with them and keeping up with documentation were the same. And so I sad to say, but I, I left, I, I left the agency because I was not supported by, by my team and by my supervisor, um, even as, even after I asked, um, for, for assistance and for maybe a break to, and like, can I see my clients, uh, every other week instead of every week and just to make it work. And it, they didn't, you know? So I think those are very, very important questions to ask. Like what's the, what will happen, you know, if someone leaves and who, who takes that, that caseload, who does it go to? So Yeah. But a lot of times, you know, we end up in these agencies, you know, whether it's because we need to pay the bills or because it's an agency that we've always wanted to work with, a population that we identify deeply with. So what are some things that you can do once you're in the agency to kind of continue to set those boundaries with management and with clients? Yeah. So some of the things that you can discuss with your supervisor, you know, once you're already hired and in the position is when will you... And will you not answer your phone? Um, I think more and more agencies are giving us a cell phone and a computer. So, um, you know, it works both ways. It's great because we are able to communicate directly with our clients um, through a cell phone, but also they are able to communicate with us at all times. So when is it okay to turn off your phone and or not take your phone with you to not check emails during the weekend? And I know... uh, a lot of us are guilty of this. That Yeah. And I would say a lot of us in management are 
guilty of continuing this culture because for a lot of us, you know, we're salary, we have large projects to work on. You know, we see you, we love you, we care about you, we want to get you that answer. And that answer might come at 3 a.m. on a Friday. Mm -hmm. But if you reply at 4 a.m. on a Friday, I'm going to be highly concerned. Um, (laughs) So how do we hold each other accountable to say like, hey, so glad, you know, that you can get back to me and that you're thinking of me at 3 a.m. on a Friday. But (laughs) you know, I'm not going to reply. I check my phone Monday through Friday, eight to five and to tell clients that too. I practice work-life boundaries. I will answer my phone anytime you call if I'm available Monday through Friday, eight to five. But just imagine at five o'clock, I shut my phone off and I put it in a drawer. Mm -hmm. So if you need something, you know, how can I help connect you to that resource, to the crisis line? Um, Or if you're on call, what does that look like in setting that boundary with that client of this is a wrong call phone number. You need to go through that first Mm -hmm. if it's not Monday through Friday, eight to five. So how are you setting and communicating that with management and clients? Exactly. And what's the definition of an emergency or a crisis? Um, I, I think we we have all had our, our fair share of experiences of clients calling us with what they think is an emergency, but it's really not. It's something that could be talked about or addressed on Monday. Mm-hmm. So, you know, just uh, um, knowing what, when you are required as a social worker, as a staff to address those emergencies and this crisis and when you don't really need to. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I used to say not to discount all the things that can happen to a human, but if it's not blood bar for bone, um, (laughs) it's probably not getting done today. Yep. It can wait until Monday. Yes. Mm -hmm. And making sure that the clients understand what you know, they think is an emergency because we've all gotten those voicemails, you know, between seven and midnight of it's a crisis. Please call me back Mm -hmm. Um, that, you know, make us sick to our stomach or keep us up at night. We're we practice our empathy and we care about our clients. So we don't want to leave them hanging. And in case something happens that it comes, you know, comes back to us. I was like, oh, they reached out for help and we didn't do anything. anything. Yeah. And also, this is a plug for setting up your voicemail to number one, say that it's confidential, and to number two, (laughs) say if it's a medical emergency, it goes to 911, and if it's a mental health crisis, it needs to go to your local crisis agency so that they know up front before they leave that harrowing message that they had the information and the resource to solve their own problem at the time they had it. Very important. So if you're listening to us right now and you work in direct practice and your voicemail doesn't say if this is an emergency, please call 911. Pause this podcast, record your voicemail, and then come back. It's super important. What else? What else, Jennifer? Well, and speaking of those emergencies and crisis, um, I personally practice rule of don't do for one what you wouldn't do for your whole caseload. And part of that is having my own internal definitions of emergency and crisis. Um, if it's an emergency or crisis and my client is starving nearly to death or, you know, can't say goodbye to their mother in the hospital on their deathbed. Those are emergencies and crisis where I'd go, sure, if anyone's mother was dying in the hospital and they didn't have transport, I would buy them a bus pass or an Uber. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, if my, if all the food banks were closed and all the shelters had finished their last dinner service and my diabetic client didn't have anything to eat, sure, I'd go get them a food box and I'd go get a food box for any one of my caseload who is in that dire of a situation. But so many times we break the rules for one and somehow somebody hears about it Mm -hmm. or somehow even in your mind it gets bent. Well, like, well, I got a food box for the Joneses. Like, (laughs) do I have to go on a Friday night and now go pick one up for the Smiths? Yep. Yeah. If you are not willing to do the same thing for all of them, then just set your boundaries. You know, you can't. I think it puts us in a very sticky situation as social workers because then we're favoring one client over another um, and we're being very biased. Yeah. And sometimes it's not even that you wouldn't or that you're not willing. It's that you couldn't. You couldn't. That if every client, you know, was in a situation to need a food box, could you go get one for all 40 of them? <laughs> and a lot of times we can't. Yep. Um, so to protect yourself, to protect your clients, to protect your agency, you know, deciding what those situations are and being very consistent. And if you get people, if you get transferred caseloads, because most of our clients aren't 
brand new to the agency, a lot of times you're adopting someone who has burned out, moved on, um, resetting those boundaries with clients. Like, hey, I know that Imelda was your caseworker before, and she goes and gets people food boxes at 7 p.m. on Friday. And that was so nice of her, but unfortunately, I'm not able to do that. So, mm-hmm. how can I empower you to solve your problems that Imelda was helping you solve? Right now, before I leave today. (laughs) And how can you teach it back to me? Teach back to me what you need to do to go get a food box. Yep. Yeah. Because, you know, something that I like to remind my clients is that our time working together, it's limited. I usually stay with clients uh, three months, six months or so. It's not to be mean or to remind them that I'm not available to them. It's just to empower them to be like, hey, you know, like I know that you rely on me for you know, X, Y, and Z, but I'm going to be gone probably in three months because you're doing so well and I want you to continue doing so well. So let's figure ways that you can provide this for yourself. Yeah. Not to be facetious, but I hope that all my clients start to practice WWJD. What would Jennifer do? (laughs) And hear a mini Jennifer in their head going, that's not a realistic thought. I, 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 I do that often actually. What would Jennifer do? Yeah, ask yourself what I would do. (laughs) Um, So yeah, I know that, you know, boundaries and the social work field are a hot topic and everyone wants them and not everyone knows how to get them. But I hope that this few pieces of feedback from what we have experienced and both, you know, being on the on the employee and the hiring point of view would help you. So keep practicing those boundaries, keep setting healthy reminders for yourself that you can do it all, but you cannot do it all at the same time. Yes. And yeah, you may, you may put a lot on your plate because you're very hungry, but there's a point where it overflows. Yeah. And a lot of these are complicated things, you know, to unpack with your manager, to unpack with clients. Um, so there's a couple kind of key boundary setting phrases that I kind of sprinkle like fairy dust to my staff. And I say, everyone's got to find their own version of this. When mm-hmm. I teach therapists to run group, my boundary setting phrase in group is I'm going to stop you right there. And because I've said it a hundred times, it feels really natural coming out of my mouth. <laughs> but I tell my staff the first time you say it, you might want to throw up a little bit because yeah, someone's telling tell you the rude. most tender moment of their life. And you're going, I'm going to stop you right there. This sounds like it would be great for individual therapy, or I'd love to talk to you about that more after group. So you got to find your own, but I'm going to stop you right there is my favorite for groups. When clients ask inappropriate questions, uh, my one-liner is, I can't possibly see how that's relevant to your treatment. Again, a lot of these are going (laughs) to feel rude. And if you don't practice them in a mirror, they're going to horrify you a little bit the first time they come out of your mouth. You're going to be like, oh my God, they just wanted to know my age. And here I am. I can't possibly see how it's relevant to your treatment. But it's got to be natural to you too. Another one of my favorites is uh, this conversation is no longer productive. I use that in management meetings. I use that with people. I use that when families are screaming. And the alternative is this conversation is no longer productive, but I'd be happy to reschedule. I I will come back. I will come back when we're calm. I will come back when we're collected. But right now it's not productive and I'm stepping away. Mm -hmm. And that's, I will repeat that 10 times. (laughs) And the family says, oh, wait, no, I'll get Aunt Jean to stop yelling. (laughs) Um, This conversation is no longer productive, but I'm happy to reschedule. Come back in an hour. I can come back tomorrow. Yeah. I think that this this one is especially useful when you're facing a client who is not very respectful towards you. Abusive. Yeah, just being Girl abusive. And, you know, we, we have all been there, you know, and, and they just to remind ourselves that it's not a personal thing, you know, they're just they're they're in a in a rough spot and they're taking it out on the person that they have in front of them and who think that, you know, might be able to to change things for them. Um but yes, practicing one liners that help you uh, transition out. You know, it could even you, you can be very empathetic and say, you know, thank you for sharing. And it sounds like this this is a hard time for you, um, but we need to stick to our treatment plan or for the purposes of this meeting. Um, I need to go see an, the next client or I need to go back to my regular activities or whatnot, you know, and, but I'll see you the next one. And, or, you know, something that I like to do is that, um, when I see, when I see that the t- 
time is running out. Um, I usually pull out my phone and look at my calendar and say like, you know what, this, it sounds like this topic, it's a great topic for the next session. And it, you know, we only have five minutes left. Uh, and I really want to listen to what you have to say about it. So let's just hold it for the next session. When would you like to schedule? When would you like, when you're available to meet again? Perfect. And that's your safe way of saying bye. Yeah. yeah. You don't you don't have to sit there for two hours after your time is up, which then puts you behind on everything else and creates more chaos for you. Exactly. So. Yeah. Agenda setting and time management are absolutely critical. I usually divide my 50 minute hour with we're going to spend five minutes catching up on your most recent week. We're going to spend five minutes making sure the agenda we set last week is great. We're going to spend 40 minutes. I'm going to set a timer on my phone. It sounds like this. Mm -hmm. And (laughs) the last 10 minutes, you, when you hear that you have five minutes to wrap up and then I have five minutes to agenda set with you and I need my five minutes and it's okay for me to take them and Mm -hmm. it's okay for you to take them. Everyone listening. You need to set that next appointment. You need to summarize. You need to do your collaborative documentation. You need to do all those good things. And Amelda's got uh, some rounder corners, a little fuzzier than I am around those boundary setting <laughs> phrases, but also a gentle reminder that when patients are being verbally abusive, no matter how much we understand them and their pain and why they're doing that, it is no excuse for them to abuse you. You did nothing to deserve to be abused. And it's okay to set those boundaries into you know, say this conversation is no longer productive, but I'd be happy to reschedule or I hear what you're saying and it doesn't give you reason to abuse me. I have to leave. Yeah. Some rough stuff, but Some stuff we stuff. all go through. Yeah. And you know, the, and I think addressing these things early on in your social work journey will help you, will save you so many headaches. Um, and I think it would just empower you too. you know, to know that you're not just there taking it all in, taking all that negative energy or, you know, the energy from your clients, but that you're also able to speak up for yourself and be like, you know what, I'm, I'm here to help you, but it sounds like this is not a productive time for either you or me. So I'm going to leave. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're all done. Now. Yeah. Yeah. And my last kind of uh, hot tip, little tough to explain. Um, lots of our clients love hugs and lots of our clients feel deeply connected and emotionally connected to us. And sometimes their uh, love language, hopefully not with your manager, um, is one of physical touch. So a lot of our clients will go in for hugs. Um, and you have to decide where your boundaries are. If you are going to give a a hug to a client, one person on your caseload, you better expect to give a hug to all 39 other clients, including, you know, your formerly incarcerated, you know, sexually aggressive client. So I think this one is a a little tricky with youth. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I have seen people have this more casual relationship with youth, especially working in residential treatment centers or high schools or schools in general. Um, you know, at that age where it's like, I want to come off as the cool social worker, Mm -hmm. the cool therapist, you know, not, I don't want you to feel, um, that you have to come see me. I want you to come see me type of thing. But there's a fine line between that and just crossing the line of like, oh, hugging and, you know, giving our personal phone number. And I worked at a high school uh, once and, um, you know, you get connected with some clients more than others. You know, Mm -hmm. they just like touch your heart more than others. And I knew that this kid had the potential. It was a Friday. Of course, it's always a Friday night, uh, Friday evening at four o'clock. Yep. At four o'clock. And this, in this case, he was in school. So like two 30, you know, the bell will ring at three. And he was just sharing with me that he didn't have a place to sleep that night, um, that he didn't know where to go. And if it was okay for him to call me if he needed anything during the weekend. And so my first reaction is like, yes, of course. You know, I'm, you know, in my mm-hmm. mind, I was like, yeah, of course, I'm not going to let you sleep on the streets. You know, like I, I want to help you. But I was like, um, well, you know, the phone number that you have is for the office. So I'm not going to be here during the weekend, but here are some phone numbers, the, the youth shelter, this is some emergency numbers that you can call and you're welcome to call this number and leave a voicemail. So I know Monday morning what's going on and, you know, give him all the resources that he could need addresses where he could go for a shelter, a bus pass, but 
it took everything from me to say like, yeah, of course you can call me on the weekend, which I didn't, but you know, it's just, yeah. especially with youth. And I it think happens so often older adults too, the number of times for like, Oh, but it's just sweet Myrna. And she, I just want to give her a hug. And mm-hmm. how does that kind of culture infantize our older adults, you know, who have that generational wisdom. And here we are like, Oh, they're so cute. I just want to <laughs> hug them. Mm-hmm. Um, so when a client goes in for a hug, One of my favorite tricks is turning that into a high five. So you see the arms coming up, you see them getting close, you push your hand away from your body, like to give them a really awesome high five, and you say the words high five so that people know you're not just pushing them. Um, And for most people, a high five is also a sign of affection. You know, it's a sign of acknowledgement, of accomplishment, of congratulations. So it still has that positive tone. It still gives a little bit of that physical connection, but nothing that's going to get your license pulled. Or um, what about a fist bump? Yeah. Same thing, right? Yeah. And I think that's a little more hygienic too. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Especially with with younger clients, fist bumps are pretty popular. Yeah. I'm probably Mm -hmm. not going to give Myrna a fist bump. No. Myrna's getting a high five. (laughs) Yeah. These are all very, very useful ways that we can practice certain boundaries from day one or even before day one when you're interviewing your potential employer to when you're actually working there. Yeah. We're some, some things to hopefully make sure that you don't turn into a, uh, either real housewife of Beverly Hill or a cat screaming at a plate of vegetables. <laughs> please. Yeah. Please don't do that. We are going to share some useful links on our website where you can find more information or more tips on how to set boundaries, healthy boundaries from the beginning with your agencies and your clients and your supervisors too. So just to recap and regroup, from our episode today, collaborative documentation, super important, time saver. Where can people find more information, Jennifer? The best place to go for that. We will have the link to the uh, SAMHSA PowerPoint in our Instagram stories and on our website. And then we talked a lot about those uh, boundaries, voicemail templates, lots of all that good stuff. Imelda, where can we find that stuff? You can also find it on our website. We'll have templates of what you can add to your voicemail and also links about healthy boundaries um, with your clients, your supervisor, with your staff, if you're a supervisor yourself. And all those important questions that um, I know all of you who are in the car on your way doing home visits didn't (laughs) uh, take down while driving. So... If throughout our conversation during this podcast or this episode, you thought about specific topics that you would like us to talk about, that you have experiences that resonate to anything we said here, please share with us. You can contact us through our social media, Instagram and Facebook. And where else, Jennifer? You can email us at info at socialworkersbreakroom.com. And our tagline is at Social Workers Break Room on Instagram and Facebook. See you next time. Every other Thursday. Every other Thursday. Bi-weekly. <laughs> bi-monthly? It's bi-monthly. Bi-monthly. I always get confused because like... But if you Google it, it says bi- both. It yeah. says every two months and every two Because I understand bi-monthly is like twice a month. Right. But and I think that's appropriate. But then what is every two months? But bi-weekly is like every two weeks.